You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For The Now media production. Hello and welcome to the Null and Void Sports Podcast. Amazingly, this is episode 10 and yet nobody has told us to stop. So we're going to keep going. My name is Tony Grundy. And mine's Andy Callahan. Andy, you've made it back from your trip to Scotland. How was it? It was, it was great, um, you know, great week of spending time with family, getting up into the mountains, walking, um, paddling. I didn't swim because it was way too cold at the world's highest beach, uh, Loch Morlock in Aviemore. So Beautiful. quite amazing to be stood on the beach and then a couple of hundred metres away, there's the snow up on the mountains next to you as you sat there in your shorts on the sand. Quite bizarre. But uh, yeah, that was great. I think the only downside, which we talked about a bit last week, was obviously being in a pub full of Scotsmen when England lost <laughs> in the football. So uh, they were all definitely supporting Italy, as I mentioned. And uh, yeah, but no, fantastic week getting out to run along the beach. Um by the water each morning in and glorious sunshine which i know scotland isn't always well known for but, but it uh, is yeah. it is such beautiful countryside i i, I had uh, radio clients up there um murray firth and all around there beautiful countryside so uh, and as as you know my mum came from edinburgh uh, just outside so i'm very fond of of that territory but you you can't do much better than the the scenery you see that was amazing all right, well, listen, there's loads of other things been happening. It, it just keeps coming at us, doesn't it? Mm. First thing on my list was Tour de France. What, were your, what was your thinking about that? I thought it was a, a, a great demonstration by, uh, I'm going to get his name wrong, but Podjakar and uh, yeah. the Team UAE Emirates. I thought, you know, he, he really took the race by the scruff of the neck um, in the middle of uh, the second or third week and absolutely took it on. Uh, I think it was a real shame for Cav. He managed to equal the record of Merckx, the cannibal, um, for a number of stage wins, but couldn't quite. I think there was a breakaway on, was it Thursday's race that would have uh, suited the sprinters that we thought was maybe when he was going to get the record. And the guy just absolutely broke off the front and uh, sort of took the sprinters out of the equation. But hopefully, fingers crossed, early next season, if he can stay fit, keep the form, keep the hunger, He'll get that record um, maybe in the first week of the Tour de France next season. But a great comeback from him when people were questioning whether he was finished. You know, he'd been unwell, illness, injuries, different teams changing. So fantastic to see him back on form. The uh, the Manx missile backfiring. Yeah, and one one thing I noted was Chris Froome and the decline, continued decline of. Mm. I mean, uh, perhaps it's not a big subject for tonight, but it is noticeable, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think, again, you know, sort of he left um, what was Team Sky now, Ineos Grenadiers, and has moved to a new team. Maybe that's taking some time to bed in. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, just uh, maybe it's that, you know, age and the number of years on the road. He's someone who's tried to take on a couple of tours a year, whereas maybe um, the GC riders quite often save themselves for one specific tour per year so maybe that's taking its toll I don't know I mean hopefully he can come back from it but you know yeah. um, unfortunately age waits for no man 
that's sad to see, as they say. But open golf, I mean, that was a brilliant win, wasn't it? You know, uh, the American, I, I watched the last hour or so of that. I, I sort of did dip bits and bats over the days. And one of the things that struck me, and it's Colin with two L's, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Colin uh, Murakaya. Uh, now, he's only two years out of university, as I understand it. And he, he already had, in the last 11 months, two wins in minor tournaments, and then he wins a major. And, and what staggered me about that was the overall calmness watching him play. He was so calm, so smooth, and yet, you know, being chased by three of the best players in the world, you know, you, you, the pressure builds as you get towards the, the end, but it didn't seem to affect him. No, and when you look at some of the scores, ridiculously low scores um, over the week, you know, you're sort of seeing people clocking up minus eight, minus nine, minus 10 yeah. as they were coming yeah. into, into Sunday. And as you say, sort of, you know, just he kept himself there. You know, he, he didn't let Oosthuizen get away from him in the first couple of days or didn't panic when Oosthuizen had really sort of taken uh, the first two days and just, yeah, you know, stayed there and then, that last day, absolutely, as you say, calm. And I know we're going to have someone on in a couple of weeks' time, a, a golf expert who talks about the mental side and and that staying calm under pressure in golf. And I think it'll be really interesting to hear her thoughts on what sort of things he was doing or this, the sort of approaches he would have taken to keep himself in, in the zone and, you know, get yeah. that flow. Extremely impressive, you know, first time out uh, for many people. They didn't even weren't even aware of him. They definitely are now. Uh, rugby league final, St. Helens. Many, many years ago, when I was up in Manchester, we were talking about that just recently, um, I, wasn't, I didn't really follow rugby league, but you were kind of forced to choose a team. And I chose St. Helens. And quite simply, I'll be totally admit, at that time, they were winning everything. And they seemed like a, a pretty good bunch of lads to me. So... It was nice to see them back in winning a final. Great final as well. Both teams really threw everything at it. And, you know, it's sort of swung both ways. Um, and as someone who enjoys rugby league, it's, uh, it's not quite as good as the, uh, the, the passion of rugby union that I have. But uh, rugby league's quite a nice mistress to have on the side. Um, so, but, but in, uh, you know, great game and a really good final. And I think, you know, great to see having had no crowds at league games for, you know, the last 18 months and then crowds limited uh, in the club matches over the last couple of months to see, what was it, 40,000, 50,000 fans at Wembley. Really good to see, uh, you know, the final coming back. I think the move to the middle of the summer is obviously a good move in terms of the weather and people having a great day out at Wembley. And the Challenge Cup final is always a really good day out for the fans it's a fans final so uh yeah great to see that now f1 silverstone limit this to two sentences otherwise we'll be end up in court <laughs> uh carnage um absolute carnage i think you know again we talked last week about the online abuse that the england fan uh, england players had suffered yeah. um yeah. we've seen the same again i think you know Anytime there's any incident like that now, um, racism rears its ugly head. And um, we've just, you know, the, the social media platforms 
the governing bodies have challenged them on it. I think we've, we've just got to stamp it out of sport. It's got no place in sport at all. Um, but the actual race, um, I've got to admit, I didn't, didn't see the incident. I was busy uh, traveling back from Scotland at much slower speeds, I will note, um, to the officers of the Dumfries and Galloway uh, police force, if any of them are listening, much slower speeds than uh, Hamilton and Verstappen were going at. But so I didn't see the incident. But from all accounts, you know, there's been barbs thrown from both sides now. Well, I, 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 I have to plead great ignorance because I don't follow F1 particularly, but I saw the incident on the news. So I've only seen it one time. But I, and I, other people have said to me who supposedly know a great, great deal more, Hamilton was well at fault. Well, all I saw was Hamilton on the inside, Verstappen coming from the outside across him. And strangely enough, they collided. You know, so I didn't see it like a lot of people have said. Um, I don't mean they didn't collide. They did. And Hamilton got a penalty for that. But I'm not so sure it's so obvious that Hamilton was totally at fault, as some people have said. Mm. But I started off by saying I don't know anything technically about it. I'm just a driver of a car. And if somebody came at me at that angle, I would think there's going to be a collision here. And there was. Mm. <laughs> you know, so... Anyway, we'll, we'll pass on that because one of the other things I wanted to talk about was the Lions. You know, there's, again, every single week we've been saying, Andy, what's, what's going on? <laughs> are we, are we going to see it? Um, I, I think so. Um, the uh, South African players that have had to isolate because of either having COVID, testing positive or exposure to that are out. So, um, Soya Khaleesi, the uh, South African captain, is available to play this weekend is the first test between the Lions and South Africa. Um, I think it's going to get very spicy. The Lions lost in midweek last week to pretty much, although it was South Africa A, pretty much a Springbok team. There were, I think, 10 of the World Cup winning side playing in that A team because they'd not had much rugby. Uh, then you flip it around on Saturday, the Springbok, lost to the Bulls which is one of their provincial teams and that would be like England losing to Bath or uh, in football mm. terms uh, you know England losing to Manchester City or Manchester United so mm. um, you know in terms of that that throws everything up in the air but they've also announced today that all three tests will now be played at Cape Town originally I think it was Joburg for the first test Cape Town for the second and then Joburg for the third. So they were going to be up and down to altitude. Playing all three at sea level actually favours the Lions and actually helps them in terms of not playing at altitude where obviously, although they the box players haven't had much experience of altitude recently because they've not been able to play, obviously they're more used to it. So with a bit of luck, that could favour the Lions. I think Warren Gatland announces his team it's, I think, Thursday for the test on Saturday, Wednesday or Thursday. So it'll be interesting to see who he picks. Um, I think getting that um, the back three, the two wingers and the fullback, is going to be crucial. But also the um, the back row, six, seven and eight on the pitch. Because, you know, you, can we really take on the spring box in a physical arm wrestle? I think they'd edge it if we try and do that. So we've got to look at what we do. And I, I would say move them around the paddock would be the way to beat 
the Springboks. But uh, obviously, Warren is paid the big bucks to make those decisions. So yeah. we'll see if he agrees with me or not. Okay, watch this space, as they say. Now, we would, obviously, normally, you and I talk a lot about the Olympics at this point. I think, just for our listeners now, just pause on that and say, why aren't they going to talk about it? I'll tell you why, because we've got a very special guest coming up in a few moments, and he's going to give us a real insight to the Olympics, because basically he's been part of that. How good is that? Now, switching subjects slightly on our Get a Grip theme. Well, this is actually was supplied to me by Rose McConaughey, the information. Alfie Hewitt. I'll pause for a second and I'll say it again, Alfie Hewitt. To be honest, who out there listening to this now knows that name? I'll bet not too many people. Well, he's actually the world's number one wheelchair tennis player. He's now 22 years old. Just to give you a bit of background, when he was only six months old, yeah, six months old, he had congenital heart problem and he had a major operation effectively to save his life now that wasn't why he's ended up in a wheelchair his disability and use of wheelchair came when he was six and he became a victim of a very rare hip abnormality really it's called and i, I may be pronouncing this incorrectly but perth's disease, Perthes disease. Alfie, though, despite that at six and getting in a wheelchair at six, has become a world champion at tennis. You know, last year, listen to this for a second, the International Tennis Federation, the ITF, altered the criteria for Alfie's classification. It was actually supported by the International Paralympic Committee. It was endorsed by them. So Alfie, at the end of this year, will no longer be able to qualify and compete as things stand. Well, what's going on? Alfie and a number of other wheelchair athletes are affected by this. It's not just Alfie. Because it's, it's athletes who can physically stand but are unable to, to, to do so in terms of their disability. But they've altered the criteria and at the moment. There's nowhere for Alfie at 22 years old and a world champion to go. Now, again, laymen looking at this, why can't they come up with a criteria, you know, do what they've done, but actually have a criterion to fit the needs of people like Alfie as a world champion? It because make... the Paralympics that I know will be happening in a couple of months um, or sorry, a couple of weeks, they have different classifications in their different sports to say, you know, at, at different levels of disability that, you know, so that you're competing on a level playing field, but still able to compete. So there must be some way that the ITF can look at this and say, there's a classification that would fit, but they've obviously decided that this doesn't fit and that 22 effectively, they're saying that 
for Alfie and people who are similar to Alfie that their tennis career is over. Is that what they're saying? That's as it is at the moment. I mean, bearing in mind they missed the Olympics last year because it wasn't on, you know, then it's all in abeyance. And the actual timing is the end of this year. He will no longer, and people like him, be able to compete. I just think that's totally and utterly outrageous. Mm. Not that they could alter the classification, fair enough, but actually it's not adapted to find another one that people like that can still be on board. It just doesn't make any sense. And the message from Null and Void is get a grip. I was going to say get a bloody grip, but I shouldn't say that, should I? But anyway, uh, name checks. Uh, I've got a couple. Have you got a couple? Yeah. Couple in, yeah. Yeah, Mike Smith actually gets two mentions here. Um, his company, Jobmate, is currently, because I saw it on social media, I very often tick the box when I see his ads, is actually within the copy telling companies to get a grip, would you believe? Do we need to consult the lawyers about that, Tony, and uh, well, we, trademark actually, infringement? I, I think if we had trademarks <laughs> get a grip, then we might be able to do that. Ah, but, yeah, we should have patented it first, shouldn't we? <laughs> I think so, maybe retrospectively so. Only joking, Mike, but interesting you're using that. Uh, plagiarisms uh, to the front. Now, Mike also says, and uh, as usual, his particular humour comes in, just listen to, to Lee Sport, the Race Across America uh, cycle story. Awesome effort, a great story, says Mike. I was inspired by Lee. Uh, he said because uh, he was telling me that I could eat whatever I wanted to. And I've been doing that uh, since. So I'm, I'm inspired by Lee, he says. I will start the exercise program once the sweat from the meat and sugar stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell Mike that Lee actually sent me a photograph from his training ride at the weekend. And there in front of him was a um, their cycle stop. And, you know, cyclists are normally notorious for stopping for a, uh, a coffee, black coffee yeah. or something like that. In front of Lee was a giant chocolate milkshake and a trifle. So tell Mike that he's got some some way to go yet. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, like, I like your thinking, Mike. Well done, Mike. Uh, Rose McConaughey says of the last episode, um, she's finally got to, round to listening to it. I know she was traveling at the weekend. Good all-rounder episode. I counted four different sports apart from the Olympics and the football mention, she said, was concentrating on the right thing, which is the disgraceful behaviour on social media and the racist comments that came around. Yeah, totally agree with that, Rosemary. Thank you very much indeed. Now, it's time for this week. I teased it before, uh, this week's guest. Andy, do you want to do the introductions? Yeah, I mean, we we said this week's guest is someone who's um, knows all about the Olympics because he's been there and um, he's actually competed at the Winter Olympics. His first one in uh, Japan at Sapporo in uh, 1972 when he was just a teenager. So, um, you know, he'll know all about uh, Japan and what's coming up over the next couple of weeks. 
Um, and then he's also the was the first ever Briton to finish second in a World Cup race in um, alpine skiing, downhill skiing in 1981. And that's only ever been achieved by one other Briton since. So he's up there as one of our most successful ever um, downhill skiers. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show Comrade Bartelski. Hi, Comrade. How are you doing? Good evening. Yeah, doing very well, thank you. Very, very well. Hi, Comrade. Um, yes, the Olympics are just round the corner. Mm, yeah, so um, you've been there. Um, you've done it. Uh, you know, there you were um, in 72 as a teenager, um, probably, you know, a couple of, couple of days before. So what sort of things are going to be going through the mind of those athletes that are there? What was going through your mind when you were sat there a couple of days before your first Olympics? Well, I mean, you, you, your eyes are on stalks because the Olympics is, is, is something bigger. Even, even now when there's not going to be a lot of, of, there's virtually no spectators there, just the number of athletes that have come together from around the world. And, and when you're walking around the Olympic Village and you're seeing all these heroes that you've been watching on TV all your lives, um, you know, particularly I was a 17 year old boy and I was just, I was, you know, virtually starstruck and, and overwhelmed by the fact you're actually in the same arena as them. Mm. But then so many athletes are there on the basis that they're going to win. In fairness, when I was in the Olympic 72, it was, it was, I was given the opportunity to gain some experience because the British did the Olympic sports in the way where taking part was more important than actually winning. And that's, thank goodness, changed. And the Brits are not like that at all now. It's their priorities and winning. So it's, it's, the athletes will be concentrating what is it going on for themselves. They'll be starstruck by seeing everybody else around them, but they know they've got a very serious job to do. It's a once, in many cases, in a lifetime opportunity. And all they want to do is deliver the best results that they can. And it's been very tough for them because they've had to delay everything by a year and they've got out there now and there's no family and friends around. There's going to be very limited, just the coaches and teams. It's, it's going to be probably slightly more serious than most Olympics are. I mean, um, once you finish your event, the Olympics can be quite a, a, a wonderful occasion. You get to see some of the sports, watch some of the other athletes. And so it's nice if your first main event is early on in the two weeks than, than if you're having to compete at the last race in the, the very last day because then you can miss out on you can have you miss out on some of the great fun and it, it is amazing you walk around some of the um i mean in london 2012 remember going to the american um house and to the to the team gb center and just walking around and seeing all these athletes and the testosterone levels are just off the planet and that's something i forgot about i mean it's you're just these athletes you know pristine strong and you know it's just it is quite extraordinary seeing so many different people different sports different backgrounds all there on to compete for these medals it, it, it's it's a privilege it really is fantastic so talking a bit more about your career um how did you get into skiing well, my dad, during the war, my dad was doing his flight training in Canada and on his days off, he, he went down to the Rockies using medicine hat and he went with a group to the Rockies and he, he was an, an avid filmer in those days. He had been, 
he showed us the eight millimeter in color films that he took when he was just getting his wings and going to the Rockies. And he said, you know, when I was there, I thought that'd be really nice when I have a family to take him to the mountains. And he was a pilot, so we could, he was working in Holland at the time and we could fly then to Munich and then get a, the train up to Kitzbühel. And we went at the beginning of January and we had a six day holiday. That was our annual holiday, it was a ski trip and, and I, can't say I enjoyed it much at the beginning because I was very small and I got wet and cold and damp because Gore-Tex wasn't invented in those days. And I, I my favorite trick was I said, Dad, I need to go to the loo. And I'd get in there and then lock the door and it you know, took him an extra 10 minutes to get me out from there. So I had a bit of comfort for a while. Uh, but then when I was about eight or nine and, and we were there in January and in Kitzbühel, where we went, they had a, they always had big races, the big race coming up to famous Kitzbühel downhill and all the ski instructors and the whole village was all talking about this. And, and you know, they were just laughing about the thought of Fritz coming down. The Aga Khan was racing in those days and he'd come back 20 seconds behind. And I'm, when I first got to watch the race, the ski instructor with me said, after the show, you bring on the clowns. And I said, right. And that, it was that statement. I said, right, I have a job to do. And my job was to try and show that it was possible because, you know, it's, it's only a physical equation. There's no magic. There's no mystique with it. And so I and I was um, so I just thought, well, that's that's I've just got a job to do. And that's what I went out and did and wanted to show it's possible. And so when I came second Val Gardena, after about 12 years of trying and often thinking I would never be able to achieve it. And having made love to a few trees at 70 or 80 miles an hour, you know, that sort of stunted my growth somewhat. Um, I eventually managed to surprise them and um, it meant an awful lot. And, you know, I just love seeing our athletes now. And would you believe that this year, um, over the last two seasons, and I've, I've written this down because it's, I want to get it right, GB Snowsport athletes have won over 45 podium positions. That's all the GB Snowsports, that's the freestyle snowboarders, the Jenny Jones type people who are competing. She's retired now, but she won a, a, the medal in 2014 at Sochi in, in the um, slope style snowboarding. It's, you know, it's just, and in the Paralympics, we've had 30 position uh, podium position so and won lots of gold medals in the world championship so by applying the same sort of science and training programs over the last eight years we're actually really starting to compete at an international level and at the world championship we didn't get any results but dave riding was super quick when he crashed three quarters of the way down from the bottom but then there's one of our youngsters uh, laurie taylor who was starting number 43 when the conditions were really terrible. It was very soft. He was actually fifth quickest when he crashed 45, 45 seconds in. So, you know, the talent is there and the, the, there are a great group of people um, working professionally and properly, um, which was slightly different when I was there. I was, a lot of the time, I was just driving around on my own with a car and giving lifts to anybody who wanted to keep me company on the journey and hopefully they were attractive as well. <laughs> I mean, so is it? You think that the 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 application of that the sports science, the funding, the support that is now unlocking that potential? Because if you like, you had to do it in spite of the system, as opposed to with the support of the system. Every every person who's involved or connected with sports, and I will even take this through into football. 
we all have one person to thank, and that, that is John Major. John Major is the man who was the initiative behind the lottery funding program. From that, this country has got some of the best coaches. Before we were always going outside, getting foreign coaches in. I mean, look at our football team. We've now got, you know, Southgate. You know, look what he's done. He's applied the science. He's listened to other people. You know, he's not just come and bullied his way around on his reputation. He's actually brought in all the specialists in all the different fields. You know, that's how the Formula One cars teams were operating, the English ones in the 70s. And, and we've always had great scientists. We've always had great coaches, but we've never actually used um, their knowledge and their experience. I mean, we've got some of the best universities in the world, for God's sake. So we have access to that information. And what the lottery funding has done is given us that huge depth of knowledge. And the Inia, you know, the Ineos cycling team is a great example. I mean, they backfired in this Tour de France, but you know, what they've achieved starting off with Will Hoy on the track events. And that was a low hanging fruit. And that's mm. when they said, well, let's build the team up there, low hanging fruit, do it a scientific way. We did the same in the, in the, in the um, skeleton and started getting medals uh, there by applying science to it. And, and we, as I said, by doing that, um, we've got a great base of support teams across all the sports now and some of those are now filtered into the skiing and and i mean we had a couple of performance directors the first guy who came in paddy mortar was wonderfully he just looked at everything and turned a lot of things on their head didn't do things as they were done before and started to look at things a different way then dan hunt came along and he had a lot of cycling background he's now actually gone back to the ineos team because he was given a great offer there but you know i know what he is been looking at. I know what research they've been doing. And there will be things appearing at the Chinese Olympics next year, because the Winter Olympics next year, which will be scientific developments done by the best minds in this country that have been engaged to support, particularly the Paralympic teams, funny enough. You know, there's lots of inroads that you can make. They've sort of been left behind in many ways. So, yeah, I mean, that's John Major was the man who we all ought to tip our caps do because he's, he's done that when you see in football it's the same you know look at the talent that England's got at the moment you know the depth that Southgate had look, look at all the people he left on the bench who never mm. got to actually even kick a ball or if they did it was just only in the penalties you know it, it's amazing um, but that's come up because again all the football teams have a huge amount of scientific knowledge and their training methods are completely different the old days and we're seeing the, the product of that. And that's just, that's exciting, I think, in British sport in general. Can, can, can I say something that you, you, you talked about when you first got into things and, and how the Brits were perceived, uh, you know, almost laughingly, uh, um, you, you know, in the sense of that's how they were perceived. But, but what struck me was, you know, for you to achieve what you achieved, given those circumstances, we shouldn't gloss over because that's a fantastic achievement. And you kind of put us on the map to give us a chance later for all the things you've just been talking about to happen. What, what, are, the, what, what are your great strengths that enabled you to come through all of that 
and be as successful as you were? Well, we had we had three women in the in the in the mid sixties, late sixties who were successful and 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 in skiing, Gina Hawthorne, Davina Glitcher, and and Bunny Field, and they had a fourth, a sixth, and eighth the Olympics in Grenoble, for example. And 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 the the lady running that team, she got good coaches in, and she actually was very innovative in the day. And they were sponsored by Annabelle's, the nightclub in in in, in the centre mm-hmm. of London. So. Um, and it's slightly different for women in those days because they had time. You know, blokes needed to earn a living. Um, if you know, if, if my parents said I've got to get my education done first before I could spend more time skiing, which was a wise thing to do. They didn't force me to go to university, um, but they allowed me to take some time off to see how I could develop it. And fortunately, in the next couple of years after that, I, I managed to develop in the way and. and could, I, want, I had to progress it then because I got to two years after the, the Olympics in 72, two of us were in the top 20 in the World Championship downhill in St. Moritz. I was 15 and my late friend Peter Fuchs was 19. How did we get to that point? Well, basically, we just trained every day God gave us. And um, I, we, I was inquisitive the whole time. We were always looking for that Clive Woodward says, you know, that that 1%. And even in those days, there's lots of little things that we're just trying to find how we could get an advantage. And funny enough, if I, you know, when I look back at my career, if we'd had coaches who'd given us confidence and certain information, I would have felt my career might have developed in a more positive way. But that's, that's you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, as Keir Starmer keeps on telling us all. Um, <laughs> The, it was just that being inquisitive. And you've got to remember the, 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 in Austria, when you're 16 and you know, you're doing ski racing, you're doing it all your life. You know? And so it's, it's not something unique or special. For me, it was just the most incredible privilege to be able to do it. And so I was perhaps thinking and sleeping skiing to an extent in a way that the Austrians weren't because they, they, they took it for granted. Yes, they had a hundred skiers who were good and the best ones would come through. But you know, we were just, working hard and, and, and doing what we felt we needed to do. And um, once you've made that commitment, you're not gonna give up. You know, you, no matter what's thrown at you, you the, the more that's thrown against you, the more than you come out fighting in some ways. It was, and you know, we had a lot of fun too. It was a privilege, it, you know, I wasn't going down a coal mine and, and, and you know, I was out in the mountains. That was my office, you know, I was, you can't, you know, I, I couldn't speak German in my in, in my early days, and we got by somehow. And I forced myself to leave, learn German because we spent a lot of time in Austria. So I felt more at home in the place. And when people saw you making that effort, they took you on board and they helped you. And they, you know, they 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 appreciated what we were doing, what we we're trying to do. And um, by God, they really owe us a little bit of money when you see the number of tourists that go out skiing, spending all those fortunes out the Alps, you know, we should have been on a 10% commission. But one thing you, <laughs> one thing you've got to remember is we invented most of the sports that, you know, we originated downhill racing and slalom racing was, was Sir Arnold Lunn, it was his idea. So there is a history there. And, and, and I never, I always remembered that history and therefore I just wanted to continue. And I just saw there's no reason why we couldn't do it. I nearly got proved wrong. What was the sequence of events from there to you moving on? Did you get involved in coaching people or or did, because I know now you're very successful in terms of photography. 
what was that sort of transition? Well, the transition is, is you get to a point, um, I had a really good year when I came second and I was regularly placing and in, in, in scoring World Cup points that year, mainly, you know, 13th, 15th places, but I, I was skiing well, I was competitive and I came back and I was really keen to get going the following year, but then I didn't have a coach for six months until I managed to get some money. David Vine helped me. Um, we tried to find a sponsor, get some money, and eventually we could get a coach. And so having worked hard and achieved something, things actually were worse rather than better, which perhaps mm -hmm. the most frustrating thing. And I, I, all I wanted to do was work twice as hard because we got to that point, which I did on my own. And was all the training I was doing the right training? I don't know, but I was training as hard as I could. And I know I was strong and fit when I went there went into that season but it didn't start off in the best way and then I hurt my back and when I was warming up for the race in Valgadena and um, for a second I thought I'd broken my back because I sort of fell over into the trees and there was a tree stump caught me in the small of the back and that and then I came back you know three weeks later to race and it was too soon and I, I wasn't having a great year and at the end of the season I had to make a decision do I go on to the, the Olympics the following year or do I now start to work and earn a living because I had to think about what I was going to do with the, my rest of my life and so I decided that um, that is what I would do I, I you know I showed it was possible and I now need to go and try and earn a living in, in this world which that was another challenge but no, the number of people asked me about ski racing, I can count on one hand. Um, Alan Baxter's father, who is a, a ski instructor up in Scotland, um, above Lake Loch Morlich, where you'd had your lovely holiday up there, which is a beautiful place. And we mm -hmm. spent many a great time up in Scotland training, running up and down those mountains in our shorts, the trainers. And all the, all the climbers were there in their climbing gear watching these kids running up and down in shorts and trainers in this brutal weather and they didn't know what was going on. Looking at you thinking, what nutters? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and, and he, he called me up one time and he said, what, 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 you know, Alan's, my son Alan's doing well, what should I do? I said, he said, just work as hard as he can. And he did. And he, and he went out Salt Lake City in 2002, came back with a bronze medal, which mm. unfortunately was stolen from him by the, by the corrupt IOC claiming that he'd been um, using a amphetamine, which in fact was not correct. He'd been using 11-amphetamine, which is actually an inert form of amphetamine, but it had triggered off the system. And, mm. and they played the system rather than playing the ethics. Was it an over-the-counter remedy or something? Yeah, it was a Vicks nasal inhaler that in Europe he'd used all this time. And, you know, it's a long story, but basically um, he did not have a drug that was a, a, a stimulant inside him. He had a drug that triggered off the check. But in fact, the check that they did, because he, he, he was doing the last race, the testing machines w in Salt Lake would, were not as good as the one in LA. They, and they would not have picked up the minuscule amount in Salt Lake, but they were sent over to LA where they had the latest machines and they picked it up. So there's almost double standards there. I mean, it's, it's horrific. And mm -hmm. you, know, you Google his name first, Thing that comes up is drug cheat and, and he's the last man that's ever drug cheat and he, he was one of the strongest and best athletes that has ever skied full stop wow that's story sad mm. story so you 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 eventually though i i noted that you know photography has become a big thing for you but that goes back a long way doesn't it with your your granddad and your first camera when you were 
But the, it is, yeah. My father was, you know, with the advantage was my father was flying to Japan as a pilot. So he could, I remember mowing the lawn about 200 times and painting painting our hallway about five times. And I managed to save up and he could buy me a little DSLR. Oh, no, it's an SLR camera. It was in those days in 1967. He came back with one and I was always interested in taking pictures. And then I got, you know, that got me into it. And I set up my darkroom in the house and I loved the art of photography and when I was ski racing I was always we were privileged training in Argentina and New Zealand and I would take photographs of where I was and write some articles from Austrian magazine because in those days you know if you went that far not many people knew about it so they were quite happy to see pictures and hear about what it's like skiing in New Zealand skiing in Argentina and I've got a lovely collection of slides from there and um, and then when I retired and you know, you got your mortgage and you got work to do and that sort of drifted off. And then I sort of got back into it really about um, 15, 16 years ago when digital cameras came in and and then suddenly I just went to this trip in Norway with a friend of mine. He'd built this lodge up in Norway, a guy from Newcastle, Graham Ostick. And I'd always wanted to ski down to the sea. That was always an ambition of mine. You can do that in Norway. And so I went up there. And I, I bought a slightly better camera for that. And um, I, I haven't looked back since then. And, and now when I go skiing, I, I like going and exploring. And I will climb up on my skis and go skiing in places where there are no ski lifts because the mountains are a place of wonderful serenity. And um, that's what I enjoyed when I was a kid. Um, when you go skiing these days, it's a bit like being in Piccadilly Circus as so many people doing it. There's a lot of places. It's called backcountry, where you get away from the people and and you you have you 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 can explore the mountains as they are. And wow, I take the camera with me, and I don't go and I take it with me for what happens. I don't go on with a mission. I want to go film this or shoot this. I want to create that or whatever. It's the moment that is presented in front of me as this world spinning around twenty four hours a day. You know, and the, with all the clouds and whatever. It's what nature gives me, and and my photography is very much a perspective of nature, and it's 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 a valuable essence. It's the most valuable brain food that all our children should have more chance to feel, see, and experience because it it develops creativity. And sticking people in classrooms and pigeonholes makes them two dimensionally develop but doesn't develop a three-dimensional brain interestingly you black and white you you you, you focused on as opposed to color um yeah 95 percent of my work is I, I shoot everything in color but when i come back yeah. um the, the the pieces i that i'll because i do exhibitions i love doing large prints um and i just the, the black the, the monochrome the the tones and textures it it's filters out the distractions um, and you tend to you tend to get the perspective a lot more there's a, occasional ones where it doesn't but I won't you know I tend to desaturate the colors rather than push the sliders up and make everything you know I like to see the world as I saw it not as I would want to see it and that's why monochrome is good because it does take away those distractions interesting mm. 
And, and so if that's that's a big business though, isn't it these days, Gondra? My understanding, very successful for you. Um, it, well, lockdown has, has, has made things very difficult because, you know, A, I haven't really been able to shoot for the last 18 months because I haven't skied for 18 months, which is the longest I've not skied since I was seven years old. I only missed one winter six decades ago because we didn't have enough money because my dad had to get replace his car because it wasn't working very well. So a skiing holiday went out the window. Um, but no, it's just actually been, it, it's, I was fortunate to have an exhibition in, in beginning of December this year in between the lockdowns, which, which I was surprised how well it went. But, you know, I, I need to do a few, I need to do a few more exhibitions before I can say it's hugely successful. But what, what I do appreciate and value is when people come into the exhibitions and they, they sense and see what I have sought to capture. And, mm. and, and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll calmly walk around the exhibition and they'll be able to leave feeling that they've had a visit to the mountains, which actually this year, you know, this last winter was, was you know, specific, especially valuable for people when they've been so restricted with traveling. Mm. But I would, you know, I, 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 I love it. I, it's, it's something that really um, excites me and uh, I enjoy photography an awful lot, but it is, it's not something I like creating. I just like capturing the moment, you know, it's one, one thousandth of a second or one four thousandths of a second. It's just that one moment that you see something um, that might not be there in a minute or might, you know, might've gone in 30 seconds. Sounds more like it captures you rather than you setting out to capture it that moment. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, you know, that's, I have to put myself in the position to be captured, which is, you know, once you're hiking up with a heavy camera on your back and you're going up, climbing 4,000 feet vertical on your skis, you know, it, it, it does, it does um, keep you, you know, healthy. Um, it, it, you know, it's hard bloody work. <laughs> but, but being out in those places, you do see and sense and, and, and it, it's liberating, you know, and as I said, it's very stimulating and, and um, I'm very privileged that it can find me and capture me. And I would imagine the journey back down is a lot easier than the journey up, though. <laughs> well, it depend, depends on which guide you're going with. I mean, I'll always go with really good guides. But so, you know, they, they, they keep you on your toes, no matter how long you've been skiing. There's, there's, there's times, you know, you look, you, you'll look down the mountain sometimes and, you know, you'll, yeah, OK. <laughs> well, even from someone who used to be going down them at, what was it, sort of speeds of touching on 100 miles an hour. Yeah, um, but you know, it, they're either different conditions. Um, but it, it's it's nice to be taken, you know, to be taken out your comfort zone in those in in, in those places. And um, the thing is, if you know, like if you're in skiing in Kyrgyzstan, for example, the the, the you know the guides we were skiing with there said, okay, you know, what would happen should an accident happen? They said, well, you know, we've got satellite phones and we'll call Medi back and we'll go. Uh, an ambulance plane flown out to you and we'll feed you with um, some drugs to keep you going to learn, but we won't take you in hospital in Kyrgyzstan. We'll just try and get you on a plane. So, you you know, you, you don't want to have any accidents in some of those places. You, so, you know, it's just, you've got to be sensible as well. Mm. You've got to be, you can't avoid every accident in life, but you can, you can control yourself so that you don't put yourself in positions where accidents are more likely to happen. All right, on, on the, in terms of your photography, because I can imagine people listening to this will be saying, 
where can I look at his work? Where could I, if I wanted to purchase something, you know, give us the information so people could get in touch if they wanted to. Yeah, it's Conrad Bartelski dot photography. So it's Conrad with a K, Conrad Bartelski dot photography is my website. And, and you'll see my exhibition work on there. And then as well, there's, there's areas of world color and, and ski touring. So, so there's lots of tabs, lots of different work. And there's work I do with um, charities. Um, Backup Trust is something I've been working with for oh, it's about 36 years now since they started up. It's for people with spinal cord injuries. And we use sport and activities to get people out from the spinal injury units and give them into a position where they can suddenly realize that the there's an awful lot that they can do with their lives. And we have great mentoring programs so that people, when they're in wheelchairs, they can actually learn how to take a wheelchair over the cobble streets of Edinburgh. Cause the first time you do that, it's just actually a huge challenge. And mm. it's something I've, I've, that's has been very rewarding working with those people and seeing how this charity has developed. And now we're getting out and to a, a large proportion of the injured and uh, spinally injured every year, which, is in the re over 2000 people. Um, and we, when we first, well, about five years, we thought we were reaching about 90% when we got to 1100. And then suddenly we realized the NHS weren't doing their statistics very well. And we suddenly found about another 1200 spinally injured being every year. So it's about you know, two, two and a half thousand injured every year. Goodness. And, and so, I, I, you know, we, we, did, we do a wheelchair race up Snowden every year. Sadly, we haven't done for two years, but that, that that's, a very special weekend because the last thing you expect when you're in a wheelchair is being top of a mountain like that and certainly racing up and down one too. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 you know, it's, it, people say, oh, it's great if you're coming doing the photographs and helping support. When I drive home, I've been inspired and life is put into a perspective in a way which is far more valuable than any work or input that I've put into that charity. It, it's, it's quite remarkable that people I've seen develop, seeing what they achieve and seeing how their lives have been turned around by understanding that there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more to, to life than not being able to use your legs, actually. It's, it's quite, quite impressive, that. Fantastic. And that's the Backup Trust, if backup any trust, of our listeners yeah. want to go and find out more about that. Yeah. Great. So it's, it's, it's sports at its most valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I, mm. And talking of, of which, I think that's a really interesting insight, your whole career. Fascinating insight tonight for our listeners. And, and for me personally, we are no expert on skiing whatsoever. But I, I just think that says so much about you as an individual, you know, in terms of succeeding when other people were almost laughing at us as a country, uh, uh, as British Isles. And I just think... The, the way that's gone with the photographer and the work you do for charity. That's a lovely story. And I hope our listeners will root out your photography website. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us tonight. I'm sure there are other occasions uh, uh, when the Olympic, Winter Olympics are around, that if you don't mind, we could come back to you and talk again. Would that be okay? Of course, any time. I mean, you know, to this, it's... It's just a privilege to be able to share some of the wonderful experiences I've been allowed to have. And, and people talk about the work and the effort you've got to put into sports. 
and yeah, I mean, my life was 100% committed to, to what I was doing, but the, 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 um, I might not, you know, I might not be, I'm healthy. I might not be wealthy, but it certainly made me wise. And that, that's something that I've been very, as I said, it's been a privilege to be able to be part of, of, of a, of a downhill ski racing world and, and the people I've met in those times as a result, you know, just, you can't, you can't, no money can buy that. Brilliant. Excellent. I think that, that, that sort of captures there what sport's all about. I think, you know, comrades captured it brilliantly there, Tony. Absolutely. And I, I thank you again, Conrad. Lovely speaking to you. And we'll obviously come back to you at the appropriate time with Winter Olympics, if that's okay with you. Sure. And I wish all the Team GB athletes who are out in Tokyo at the moment. I wish them all the very, very best and savour every miniature out there and enjoy the Japanese food. It's just the best. <laughs> Thank you, Conrad. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Thanks Conrad. Good Take night. Care. All the best. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. Now that's a, a lovely, lovely man and, and a great interview. Really enjoyed every moment of that and a real insight to how champions are created. Um, and, and obviously developing a photography business of sub, some substance. So uh, do look at that website. Thank you again, Conrad. Thank you. Cheers. Now, Andy, another great guest. Fantastic, isn't it? And just to hear his story. And uh, I mean, you know, as he said, you know, to go from that sort of looking at the other nations almost laughing at us and yep. uh, him saying, I'm going to do something about this. I mean, I think, you know, it says something when, even when he won at Val Gardena that Comrade talks about in Italy, I think it was one of the French commentators said, uh, ce n'est pas possible, c'est un anglais, which for those that aren't uh, as up on their pigeon French as I am, is it's not possible. It's an Englishman. So he was really showing the world that actually, you know, you're laughing at us and he, he was doing something about that. And as, as we talked about, paved the way for, you know, some of the athletes now who are competing in the GB snow sport team um, to actually, you know, set, set the marker and said to them, this is what can be done. Yeah. No, I think it was very valuable, very valuable insight. And uh, I'll say it great from our point of view and we've been so lucky with the uh, speakers we the guest speakers we've had um we really do value your comments i'd love to hear what you thought about conrad every week we get uh contacts from you so listen out at the end of this podcast for those contact details so you can send us that information we love hearing from you join us next week as I always say, at a time and a place to suit you, because that's how podcasts work. Andy, final words from you? Yeah, just looking forward to this week and the, the start, fingers crossed, of the Olympics in Tokyo that we've talked about. I mean, I think, you know, there's some great British prospects there. Be it, you know, Helen Glover coming back. Um, that was a great documentary, wasn't it? Yeah, the BBC uh, did that really well last night. And, you know, her coming back for a third, potentially third gold medal in the rowing. Um, and, you know, after taking a break um, for to start a family and then, you know, only, only coming back into the boat last year. So great. You know, can our other British golden couple, Jason and Laura Kenny, actually become the most 
uh, decorated male and decorated female GB Olympians of all time. Um, and then you've got some other up and coming um, younger competitors in some of the newer sports, you know, sort of skateboarding makes its Olympic debut and uh, sport climbing, rock climbing as well. And then one that having been up in Scotland this week, one to um, a name that I've got to mention and someone to look out for is Sinead McIntosh, who's um, she's the world number one in uh, the 50 meter shooting. So she's going for gold in both the 50 meter shooting and the 10 meter air rifle. So uh, top tip there, if you've not heard of Sinead, watch out for her because she's a really great prospect. Well, Andy, I see surfing has become an Olympic sport. And with your paddleboarding, I think, you know, if you develop that a bit, you never know the next one. <laughs> uh, I, I think it'd take a lot more than comrades talk about marginal gains, the aggregation of marginal <laughs> gains and the 1%. So I think that'd be, there's a there's 100% needed there. <laughs> <laughs> Just a thought anyway. But yeah, look forward to hearing from you and speaking to you all next week. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll say goodnight and, and see you next week. Take care, folks, and uh, in, enjoy the Olympics. Cheers, Bye. Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan. Together, they don't add up to much. If you have a sports story, you can contact the team on nandv at forthenow.co.uk.